Omajina Trivananda Sha, Jina Jina Salakaya, Chakshun Melitanyi, Tasmai Shi Gurave Namaha. Vanskapatu Vyascha, Kripis in the Vivacha, Petita Nam Pamanevio Vaishnavijanamon Maha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Nasta Priyeshu Abhyeshu Nicham Bhagavate Sevaya. Bhagavatyutama Shloke Bhaktir Bhavati Naistiki. Good evening, everyone. We'll continue tonight our discussion of the Satsandarvas of Srila Jiva Goswami. We are in the first Sandarbha, the Tattva Sandarbha. And we are in the second half of that Sandarbha, which is dealing with ontology. Ontology being that which is knowable and in our case being aspirants for spiritual life trying to rid ourselves of the slings and arrows of outrageous material existence that are always coming in different ways our focus is on methodology employing uh, sambanda an understanding of what is spiritual, what is material, what is the nature, our nature of being, what is the nature of being of the absolute, if there is an absolute, how do we perceive him, where is he, we can infer so much, but there's additional knowledge, so sambanda, proper understanding of the inner relationships of both, of all the energies of the Supreme, material, spiritual, and our specific condition uh, being that of a, a conscious spiritual entity like that supreme a methodology to employ to rectify the situation of material existence abhideya and if we can fully rectify that situation uh, relieving ourselves from misconceptions, from what's referred to as anarthas, not only bad habits, but uh, applying our values of life, of existence, in the wrong places. That's an anartha, putting our love in all the wrong places. <laughs> that practice of abhideya, of putting things in proper perspective, is many faceted, but one of the main facets of it is acquisition of knowledge, proper spiritual knowledge, seeing things in a proper perspective, and then acting accordingly. Sometimes the action comes before the acquisition of knowledge just to get us going in the right direction. Our actions sometimes are so much centered in material life about around ourselves that we become so overwhelmed that even when we hear important and worthwhile spiritual knowledge, it won't register. The great sages, they look at material nature and they see those in the mode of ignorance, passion, goodness. And when the jivatma is 
too overwhelmed with ignorance or passion, advancement that's available to them through knowledge is difficult to apprehend. So, therefore, sometimes we start on the karma mark activity and reward. Do something this way and you will get the reward. And by engaging in those activities long enough, then some faith is gained in the preceptor. In some instances, the preceptor is, is scripture, Shastra. Sometimes the preceptor is a sage, a uni, a guru, a teacher. Some confidence is gained in a process of religiosity, and from that process of religiosity, that confidence grows and higher goals can be aspired to, higher than just, if I engage in this, I'm going to get a good reward. That I could actually, well, maybe there's greater rewards than what's what I'm even perceiving as, as worthwhile. And then we can start to hear that knowledge can come, and uh, from that knowledge, sound spiritual understanding follows. And then this process that we're discussing here, Abhideya, a true wholesale turning of awareness, consciousness, and activity to the Supreme. That's the practice of Abhideya, and then we have the goal. What would make us want to go through that wholesale turning of our existence? It's going to have to be something very significant, or who's going to go to the trouble? Who's going to give up what is all that they know to be pleasurable in existence for some other existence unless there is some culture of a higher knowledge. Sambandha, Abhideya, Prayojan. And that's what Jiva is now presenting in his Tattva Sandarbha. What is worth knowing why is it worth knowing and what's the proper methodology to employ to not only know but to know fully. Full knowing means full experiencing. So we're going to start this evening by chanting this verse from the third canto. We're discussing in the Tattva Sandarbhas this wholesale turning of consciousness and Shuddha Vyasadeva's his samadhi, his revelation. And in his revelation, he saw the Supreme. He saw the Supreme with all his intrinsic energies. He saw his external potency also, standing at a distance behind, not wanting to come in front of him, a little ashamed of what she has to do, but it has to be done. She's been doing it naughty forever and he saw the jiva and he saw the plight of the jiva when that external potency does her duty so this verse speaks to the <coughs> remedy for the jiva speaks of the remedy so we'll chant 
Sata prasangan mamavirya samvido. Satam prasangan mamavirya samvido. Bhavanti hrit karna rasayana katha. Bhavanti hrit karna rasayana katha. Tas jol sanad as vapavarga vartmani. Shraddha Ritir Bhaktir Anu Kramishyati Satam Prasangan Mamavirya Samvido Bhavanti Hrit Karna Vasayanakatha Tas Jolsanad Asva Pavarga Vartmani Shraddha Ritir Bhaktir Anu Kramishyati from association with the best devotees, topics of my glorious pastimes become directly realized, bringing the devotee to Nista. Then the topics become an elixir for the heart and ears at the stage of Ruchi. By taste for these topics, Asakti, Bhava, and then praying for the Lord, who is the destroyer of material life, quickly develop in sequence. So, remedial measures, hearing from the best devotees, associating with the best devotees, and hearing from them immediately brings profound spiritual realization. The pastimes are directly realized, is what the English translation is here. Ritkarna the heart. They're pleasing to the ear, pleasing to the heart. So this this cultivation of hearing, so simple. Just hearing from the sadhu, this cultivation of hearing quickly takes us through the stages of sadhana bhakti. Step by step. Now we always say, well, quickly. What do you mean quickly? You know, we talk, well, what's your quick? What definition are you using for quick? But let's look at a naughty. Let's look at a naughty. Beginningless. We cannot trace out our involvement in this material energy. Now, we can get some glimmer as to what are the concepts of time in the material realm that are put forward we can get some some little viewpoint of that from the Shastra wherein the lifetime of Brahma is, is looked at and then we look to his day and that duration of time and we look to within that day different cycles of different ages of mankind, one day, a thousand cycles, and each cycle is four yugas, each yuga is a quarter of the one, four, and then we look at the lifetime of ourselves, and it's infinitesimal, even in the viewpoint of Brahma's one day. How much infinitesimal is it? Well, we get some glimmer from that from the Brahma Vimohan Leela. Brahma 
looked away for a moment of his time, a moment. And he looked back, and a year had passed in the time of man, a whole year, one moment. There's some insects, I'm sure, that their duration of life is one of our days. Their whole duration of life. We get some, some idea of that. So when we talk of this quickly, quickly is, is just that when we look at our sojourn in material existence. It's very quickly. Of course, the beginning stage up to the stage of Nista. This verse talks about the hearing pulls us to the stage of Nista. So we're familiar with the stages of progressive devotional service as given by Srila Rupa Goswami and Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, as elaborated upon by Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur and his Madhurya Kadambani. And this stage of eliminating misplaced values has to be gone through before one reaches the stage of Nista. And misplaced values means to some extent we're looking for pleasure in the wrong places so we engage in activities that are actually detrimental to not only a wholesome life but a, a wholesomeness in material existence that doesn't result in suffering for activity bad karma we would call it and then we look to the whole a deeper we go deeper than just the karmic thing to turn off the karma is automatically built in for the for one pursuing spiritual life comes automatically at the very beginning that is turned off and the whole focus changes although quickly what do you mean by quickly I still think I'm still experiencing what appears to be karma but here it says by hearing from these pure devotees by associating with them quickly these things are eliminated so when we hear like this then we have to contemplate we have to think we have to think and we have to think in relationship to what's presented in the scripture and what's presented there is these stages we advance quickly through these stages but from the from what viewpoint is that quickness it's instantaneous from the they say the scripture says it comes this advancing this going forward this karma this removable removal of of parabda uh, aparabda kuta bija all this karma this is also removed and the analogy is there it's like if you put, if you have a stack of flower petals and you stick a needle through them, it's like immediately, but still the needle is going through one petal at a time. So similarly, this elimination of karma, this advancing through the stages, preliminary stages of sadhana bhakti, up through the stages that are discussed here in this verse, it's happening very quickly. And provided we can maintain that prasanga, that superior association, and as we spoke last time, at any cost, 
we should be willing to pay whatever it takes to stay in that good association and here. And in doing that, we're assured of this rapid advancement just by continuing to hear. But you can see when you put yourself in that environment, just to stay in that environment, there's some qualification required. You have to, to sit with the sadhus, you have to act like a lady or a gentleman. You have to sit properly. You have to act properly in their presence. You have to, you have to curb uh, foolishness and, and, and lust, anger and greed. You have to gradually bring those under control just to maintain that association. Otherwise, you'll be frustrated and they'll be frustrated. You have to work personally and take advantage of hearing the pastimes and hearing the directions from the sadhus. You have to work on purifying your heart and that purification will make the message clearer and clearer as we discussed last time. It's not an intellectual process, it's a process of cleansing the heart. Sheto Darpanamarjanam. So, going on with our discussion on ontology from Jiva Goswami. So we're on Anucheta 34 and this section is dealing with the Samadhi of Srila Vyasadeva and putting that in perspective uh, for us. And this particular Anucheta is going to continue where we left off giving us a perspective of what is the distinction, what are the distinguishing factors between the Supreme and ourselves. The Ishwara and the Jiva. What, they're both conscious entities. We've been informed. They both have conscious, their awareness. They're aware but what distinguishes one from the other? So, Jiva Goswami begins this 34th Anucheda by quoting a verse from, from that Samadhi of Srila Vyasudeva. Bhakti Yogena Manasi Samyak Pranihite Malay Apashyat Purusham Purnam Mayam cha tad apashrayam. So again, we come back to this verse. His emphasis here is now on tad apashrayam. So tat is apashrayam under full control <coughs> maya. Tad apashrayam is separate yet fully supported by him. So he begins by telling us, look at this verse. And this gives us an indication of what is the distinction between the Jivatma and Bhagavan Ishvara. That the Ishwara has the material energy completely under his control. Tat Apashrayam Maya. In the verse 
with Sanskrit, it reads, Tad Apashrayam. Tat Apashrayam Maya. Under his full control, Apashrayam Maya. Maya is. Okay, that's nice for Ashwara. The Maya is under his control. Then he goes on, but there's a difference. That supreme entity has Maya under his control, but if we go to the next verse of Vyasa's Samadhi, it begins, Yaya Samo Hito Jiva. Yaya, by whom Samo Hita illusioned Jiva, the living entities. Atmanam Tri Gunatmakam. The Jiva is deluded by Maya. In the one verse, Ishvara controls Maya, and then the very next verse, the Jiva is controlled by Maya. There's your difference. Quite simple. And this came as part of Vyasadeva's Samadhi. This is what he saw. So he saw the difference between the Ishvara, Bhagavan, and the Jiva. So Baladeva in his commentary on the Bhagavatam verse that's used to describe the position of the Asvara being the controller of Maya, and he said that Vyasadeva saw these five items. These five. He saw Bhagavan, he saw the Jivas, he saw Maya, that energy of his that had the Maya that controlled the jivas and he also saw time because without time there's no action all activities happen in time stop time nothing's going to happen so everything's happening with that energy in play now maya does not have jurisdiction over time but Maya's activities happen within that framework of past, present, and future, which time affords. So is time, so time is one of the energies of Krishna? Yes, time I am, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. He goes on to fluff this out a little bit. Bhagavan and the jivas are both purely of the nature of consciousness. Bhagavan is infinite, the jiva is infinitesimal. Time is not conscious, but is independent of the influence of the material gunas. It just keeps on rolling, but nothing gets in its way. It's not impeded. It's not underneath the influence of the modes of material nature. Now, material nature is composed of the three gunas, illumination, dynamic activity, and ignorance. So, authentic being, conditional being, and stasis, ignorance. In the Paramatma Sandarbha, Jiva Goswami explains, now we come forward to the radical non-dualism. So, eight Anucheta is showing Sri Vyasadeva's transcognitive experience contradicts radical non-dualism Advaita Bhad of Sankaracharya so the first one out of Cheta 35 
essential distinction between the jiva and ashvara. So he begins there. We just had an, had an anucheta that said, okay, here we can see there's a distinction. One's under the control of maya, one's controlling maya. One's infinite, one's infinitesimal. So the Advaita Vad of Sankaracharya, Jiva Goswami begins by saying, this is what these Advaitins believe. The very moment pure consciousness, Brahman, becomes the support of Maya and embodiment of knowledge, Isvara, it simultaneously falls under Maya's influence. This is faulty logic. Now, he's going to go forward in this and the next seven anuchetas to show how this just makes no sense at all. It's faulty logic. If we want to look to non-dualism as, as the supreme, that we want to say that it's, it's all one spiritual energy without distinguishing it, without any aesthetic qualities, without any potencies, without any distinctions. How in the world can you point to another energy that can have any influence upon it? It's everything. So what you're saying is totally illogical. So let's look at this illogical proposition the Advaitins put forward as their spiritual doctrine. Let me show you how everything that this Sankaracharya poured out as an analysis of the scriptures, let me show you how it makes no sense at all to any reasonable, spiritual, inquisitive person. So first of all, well, it doesn't correspond with the revelation of Vyasadeva. So what is the point of, of Vyasadeva's revelation? What they're saying does not correspond with it. How doesn't it correspond with it? What did the Advaitins say? What do they say about the supreme personality and the jiva? What is their conclusion? Well, they give a few conclusions because they have no real conclusion. They have to give their own interpretation of different scriptural ideas and come forth with this conjecture as to how Brahman could come under the influence of a potency that could subjugate that supreme energy. This is their explanation. But before it gets there, the commentators, both Jiva and Baladeva Bhushan, who's ever con uh, made some commentary on Jiva's Sandarbhas, they want to get a few points out there. What is the nature of this Advaitavad? What is its nature in relationship to the understanding of the Gaudias? And how has it been referred to by the great preceptors coming in our line? So first, 
an example is spoken by looking at what Raghunath Das Goswami says in relationship to this philosophy. My dear mind, never listen to talk about impersonal liberation, which is like a tigress that swallows everything, including the self. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, if one hears the Advaita Vad interpretation, everything comes to ruin. They strip absolute reality of aesthetic value, of distinctiveness, and of power. We can't stand that. You want to take away the aesthetic value of Krishna, the sweetness of Krishna? You want to take away his power and the fact that he's different? We love his differences. He's so much different than us that it's, it's, there's, there's nothing not to be lovable there. Us, in relationship with his external potency, is nothing lovable. It's uncomfortable. It's unappealing. This Advaita Vad philosophy is looked at by those that really know the Bhagavatam as the greatest offense to Swayam Bhagavan Sri Krishna. That's how serious it is. And that's how we that's why we take it to task. So we can easily detect its presence and kick it far away. Madhvacharya, Madhvacharya coming before Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he wrote a book, Mayavad Kandana, and he exposed in the book the way that Sankaracharya, he's written this book to show how Sankaracharya's conclusions are arrived at by the misuse of grammatical analysis and, as we'd already mentioned, faulty logic. So he even took them to task, Sankaracharya's interpretation. Jiva Goswami just refers to it as incoherent speculations. And his primary point is it doesn't correspond with what Srila Vyasudeva saw in Samadhi. Yes? Do the Advaitans accept Vyasudeva? Like, because they, they follow the Vedas, so you would like, I'm just wondering, what does it matter to them what Vyasadeva thought, or do they consider him? Well, because they, they base their conclusions on Shastra. Uh-huh. They base their conclusions on the Vedas, on the Vedanta Sutra, on the Bhagavad Gita, on the eleven Upanishads. They base their conclusions on that. But how do they arrive at those conclusions? Well, you have you have Sankaracharya, Shiva himself coming to what? To give some misinterpretation to the Vedas to what end? Well, it was necessary. It was called what do we call it? Preaching strategy. A preaching strategy. And why was it necessary? Because of the Buddhists. The Buddha what? The Buddha kicked the Veda out. Because why? People were misusing the Veda. They were sacrificing, killing animals, doing so much sacrifice. They, they, they had lost what's good in that process. They only wanted the material fruit. 
and they were not learning that, yes, get the material fruit, but they weren't going the next step. Now give up the desires. Now look to the higher ends. No, it just became a ritualistic thing. And it ended up in suffering for living entities. To eliminate that suffering, Buddha did his thing and kicked the Vedas out. And then Sankara came back. He said, well, Buddha's good. We accept that. Ahims is great. And this whole thing of, of, of giving up karma is a good idea. But it's a little... The priogen is... You got it a little off. You want, you're a little off there. Your priogen is sunya, nothing, nirvana, that leads to nothingness? Let's put somethingness in place of nothingness. The somethingness is explained in the Vedas. It's Brahman. And here it's explained, and there it's explained, and let me tell you how you'll see it in, in the Vedas. And there's no real difference in your nirvana and this Brahman realization except yours is without any substance and the Vedas is giving you spiritual substance. So there's a pleasure in that spiritual energy which you are. Better to be something than nothing. <laughs> These are the Advaitins' claims. The ultimate reality is radically non-dual pure consciousness doesn't get better than that for them. Without form or attributes, nati nati, when you eliminate everything else, you're left with the spiritual reality. Eliminate all these impressions. Everything that's here, it's not that. It's not the body. It's not the subtle body. It's not the consciousness. It's not the trees, the birds, the sky, the sun, the moon. It's not, it's not, it's not. And what you're left is santa. Peaceful existence in spiritual awareness. In addition to that ultimate reality, there is a beginningless entity. What kind of entity? Beginningless, a naughty. Called maya or illusion. Where that came Where from. That from? <laughs> right. Maya has two aspects. It has vidya and avidya, knowledge and ignorance. When the totality of Brahman contacts vidya, knowledge, we have Ishvara, what you would call the supreme personality, which only comes becomes manifest in relationship to maya, which is an illusion that doesn't exist. It's an apati. We'll get more of that. When that Brahman, a small portion of it, comes in contact with avidya, you have the jiva. In reality, neither the jiva or the aswara exist outside of contact with this entity, Maya, which is an illusion. The difference between the Aswara and the Jiva is only the Upadi. 
Upadi means when you put that spiritual Brahman in front of ignorance, it's the Jivatma. You put that spiritual Brahman in front of knowledge, it's Ishwara. Both Ishwara and Jiva are illusion. There are padis upon Brahman, which is that all-pervasive ultimate reality. Perfection for them is realizing the self transcendental to apadis. Eliminate apadis. What's the elimination? Nati, nati. Not this, not that. Nati, nati. Not that, not that. So eliminate all the apadis and you have unlimited and non-variegated Brahman. That's their belief system. How do they wrangle that out of the Vedas? And that's what these eight verses of the Tattva Sandarbha by Jiva are going to... They can't, he's not going to give us a complete... This is, just a, this is just a very summary summary idea of where Sankaracharya came from how he wrangled out these ideas from the Vedas Tattvamasi you are that and there's a, there are verses that what Sankaracharya does is for the most part he takes them out of context you can take a verse of the Bhagavatam or a verse from the Upanishads and you don't put it in the context of what's being presented when we first came to Krishna consciousness we, we, used, we learned uh, one of the Upanishads a portion Isopanishad Om Purnam Adaha Purnam Idam Purnam Purnam Udachate Purnasya Purnamadayam Purnam Iva Vasishyate we used to chant it every day again and again and again and if you read some of the verses the English is like it's pretty out of the context of the whole prayer of this Upanishad that you can take some impersonalist meaning just reading one prayer by itself in the context of the whole presentation no because at the end what's the prayer please remove your effulgence so that I can see your face. Because if you do not remove it, I can't see the variegatedness. There's no aesthetic value there. I only see your spiritual energies everywhere, just like the sun. Now there's two major methodologies which the Advaitins use to analogies and it, when it comes to these upadis and how they apply them one is in the application of the upadi to the jivatma they compare it to the sky which is all pervasive but you could also have sky in an earthen pot if you break the pot the sky merges with the big sky so there you go that's one and the other is the reflection of the sun in so many 
containers which have water, a lake, an ocean, a glass, cup, pond. We see this reflection of the sun, but the sun is not really there. The sun is the sun. Our counter-arguments, in brief and closing, to the simple concept that they have is if Brahman is all-pervasive everywhere, then how can it exist simultaneously with Maya, with ignorance? How can you have light and darkness at the same point, at the same time? You can't. You can have one or the other. You can't have it both ways. So ignorance and knowledge cannot exist simultaneously in one undivided reality. If Ramon is that one undivided reality, it can't exist simultaneously with ignorance. And Brahman cannot be both the controller and the controlled. doesn't make sense. So if it's only Brahman, then the possibility of an Ishwara and the possibility of a Jiva, the Jivapa, cannot exist. So those are the foundational arguments in opposition. Going forward, Jiva will give more detail. He'll look a little deeper. This gets pretty thick, this next seven Anuchetas. We'll go as deep as I can go. We, I can only fly as high as my wings will carry me. And, you know, These arguments are very profound. But we'll try to bring out some of the some of the points. So I'll stop there for this evening. Are there any questions? I have a few. Yes. Short ones. Um, when it said that um, Shiva Shankaracharya came to bewilder the atheist, does that mean he came to bewilder the Buddhist into taking up Vedic? Why does it say that? What does it say? I think it says Shankaracharya came to bewilder the atheist. I think Prabhupada says that. Mm-hmm. So why does... What, how did he bewilder the atheists? Or? Well, the atheists were primarily what at the time before his advent? Buddhists. Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So he came to bewilder them by giving them what they wanted, their atheism, mm-hmm. but to change the source of their atheism from the Lord's manifestation of Buddha himself to the Lord's Shastra. Mm-hmm. So he bewildered them into now he's bringing them back onto the path of scripture Mm -hmm. because that's a pretty dangerous place out there with not accepting you know the the value of Shastra that's Mm -hmm. you know so he's he's bewildering them from from the Buddhism that they've taken to Mm -hmm and uh, basically tricked them through his arguments into seeing in the Veda Buddha's arguments. Through his arguments, he's, he's, you know, he's bringing them into to seeing in the Veda what's really not there. That's the trick.
impersonalism really doesn't reside within the Veda and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. It's not there. But I'll trick you with my faulty logic and you'll think it is there. And then you start to follow the Veda. But when you're following the Veda, well, Buddha's not here now, so now you follow the Veda. So you're still following the Supreme. And you're thinking you're getting the same information. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, one time someone asked Prabhupada a similar question. He said something like, um, you know, we can't understand why Krishna does everything that he does. So it seemed to me like kind of one of those, one of those answers, like, yeah, uh, we fell from Vaikuntha answers. You know, it's like, I'm looking for the answer, but the way the answer he gave is that, oh, you can't understand it, which is different than the answer you gave, which I prefer your answer. Okay. But I was just, it seems like that... Everything's thing. according to to the Sangha. So it seems like that was kind of the answer he's giving, is kind of like, not the highest answer. That yeah, Prabhupada painted in very broad strokes. Mm -hmm. And you also have to understand the uh, the overriding uh, intellectual and, and and spiritual culture that we, he was preaching in. Mm -hmm. There was no foundation in that culture for acceptance of the Veda, even. Mm -hmm. So, if he would have said, "Well, it was to bring them back to the Veda," probably we were just starting with Bhagavad Gita. Hard enough to accept what Krishna is saying in Bhagavad Gita regarding uh, kill your family. <laughs> so, what to speak of acceptance, the authority of the Vedas. We never heard of the Vedas before. Yes, yeah, that's correct. In our culture, there was no discussion of Vedic knowledge. May I ask another question? Sure. So, just, uh, is, is Vyasadev, is he, um, is he Krishna himself coming down, or is he like a jiva or something? In this Kali Yuga, mm -hmm. at this time, Krishna Dwaipayan Vyas mm -hmm. is... Krishna himself, yes. Okay. Um, some some Vyasa Devas are simply empowered Jivatmas. Mm -hmm. So this uh, this last question, if we have time, it's, I don't know if it's related. It's kind of related. Um, the Buddhists uh, were engaging in sacrifice, or no, before Buddha came, they were engaging in sacrifice just for the the fruits. I was reading last night in the uh, Nama book about. Um, a job mill continued doing his sinful activities, or what seemed to be sinful activities, because if uh, I forgot what the argument was, but basically the, the concluding argument was that um, for some reason, like if people, do you remember that? Some like people, everyone would rush to the bhakti path and take it up if if uh, if they could see that a job mill had like changed his weight. I don't remember what the argument was. If the jiva could obtain moksha mm. that easy, mm. everyone would rush mm. to the bhakti path. Mm. That's the argument that's made. Mm. So, that's the argument that's made for the fact that he continued in his, in his sinful activity. No one could perceive the fact that he was no longer affected by it. Mm. So, because his, his first utterance in calling his son Narayan at that point he was liberated mm. from karma his karma ended when his son came out of the womb and he set, called out Narayan 
not at the moment of death, because that's the power of the holy name, even Nama Boss. He was calling his son, but immediately that. But it can it appeared. So his karma ended at that point, is what is the point. And remember, Ajameel's this whole pastime of Ajameel is a very special case. Not many of us come to the point of chanting without some offense to the holy name at some time. But that's also brought out in the book. Yeah, I was wondering, like, if everyone came to the bhakti path, uh, why would that be a bad thing? Would it obscure the path too much? Like, the real goal of it? Like, what's, why, why prevent everyone from just rushing to take up bhakti? There's no reason. That's why Lord Chaitanya came, to, to bring everybody to the bhakti path. Mm. But it's also a matter of it's a matter of what is the intent of our rushing to the bhakti path. Mm-hmm. Now, what he's talking about is cheap running to the bhakti path to run away from karma. Mm-hmm. So you can chant Nama Bas. Well, first of all, if you have enough knowledge to know Nama Bas from Sudanam, chanting the name of the Lord, appealing to the Lord, well, right now, then you're that particular a boss loophole is over. You have too much knowledge to take advantage of it. So they're not rushing to the bhakti. They're rushing to the bhakti path, but they're thinking they're thinking about Krishna when they chant Krishna's name. Then, well, that's different. Then you have to chant it without offense because your approach is different. You're approaching the supreme now. It has to be offenseless in order to gain his attention. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have another question, but I'll have to look at the book again to like... Yeah, we'll read it a couple times. It's a good book. It's a very good book. It's a lot there. It's a lot there, and what's nice about it is the fact that you you can see all these these technicalities and how they play out and you start to see, wow, like the, just the point. Most everybody, when we read the Bhagavatam, we hear about Ajameel, we think Ajameel was perfected at the time of his death. Right. No, he was already perfect. He'd already chanted Nama Bas, and his karma ended at the first utterance of the Lord's name. When, he first, when his child was born. Yes, when he, he first Ryan. uttered, right because he was not thinking of Krishna at the time. He was thinking of his son the whole time, even up to the time of death. Anybody else? Thank you so much for your association. Bunch of